Uh, well, hey, good morning to you. If you're new, my name is Steve, one of the pastors here. On your way in, if you weren't here with us last week, let me preface all that we're going to talk about today by the fact that we handed out a brand new study guide to you. should be on one of the uh, tables here in the corners or in the back on your way in. Uh, if you are new or missed last week with us, go ahead and pick up one of those. That's our gift to you to help us. Uh, work together through the book of Malachi. So if you've got it, why don't you open it up here to that second page, or if you've got a Bible, go ahead and grab it and find Malachi chapter 1. Malachi chapter 1 is where we're going to be. <clears throat> uh, last week, we jumped into this book really with the first five verses, and it was the most uh, clear, the most explicit, and most direct conversation that Malachi had with the people of Israel. As a reminder, the people of Israel have come out of exile, and they're back in their land. They've restored the altar, and the temple, and the priesthood, and the sacrificial offerings. Nehemiah has rebuilt the wall, and they're essentially back in the land that they had left as a result of their disobedience. And after 70 years of exile, they have all come back. But they're still under the rule of Persia. Uh, in fact, this text tells us, uh, uses a very particular word for the word governor, which lets us know, it's a Persian term to let us know that this, the people of Israel are still under Persian control at this time. So last week we looked at the first disputation, the first argument between Malachi, I'm sorry, between God's people and God through the prophet of Malachi. And that whole message was about the love of God. It was about God's choosing and electing covenant love that he put upon his people all the way back beginning with Jacob rather than Esau that has maintained his faithfulness to his promises. And it brought the nation of Israel great comfort as they begin to understand that God does indeed love them. God does indeed care for them. God has been faithful to the promises going back to, a to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the 12, the tribes, the exile, the return. God is still God. God still loves his people and he's still faithful to them. Well, today we get into a next section here. If you'll see uh, in your Bible, Malachi chapter 1, verses 6. This section goes all the way through to about verse 9. And it's a rebuke on two groups of people. Primarily, uh, it's a rebuke to the priests, but the people are involved too, as you'll see in a little bit. They're kind of put together in this first section. And this section is a long one, so we broke it up and we're going to handle verses 6 through 14 this week and then 2 through whatever I said, verse 9 uh, next week. So, uh, what you find here in this section is if we struggle last week with remembering that God loves us, our worship, which is what we're going to look at this week, is necessarily going to be messed up. Would you agree with that? That if I struggle to believe that God is faithful, God loves me, God has a plan, God's in control, God is strong, God is for me, then my worship is going to get malnourished. It's going to get twisted in the way that I respond both to God and to life and to my spouse and to my, to my kids. If I lose the love of God, my worship necessarily comes out twisted and, and kind of sideways. Well, this week... The conversation that is going to happen between God and his people through Malachi doesn't have to do with God's love. It's going to move and it's going to have a, to be a conversation about God's glory. It's going to be a conversation about worship because if I don't understand God's love, my worship gets twisted. So just, be, just like Malachi does here, we got to get the love of God right, our understanding of God and who he is and how faithful he's been for us to be able to worship correctly. Uh, you'll find in this passage that Malachi's rebuke is primarily uh, aimed at the priests because not only have the people nationally forgotten God's love. You remember that last week. We looked at the heritage of Esau and the heritage of Jacob. We looked at two distinct nations. One that said we're not, we're going to ignore God's rebuke and we're going to rebuild and the other that has forgotten the fact that God has loved them. That's kind of a national rebuke. Well this one is more particular because the priests and the people now as they go about their day are going to really wrestle with honoring God the way that he's supposed to be honored. What do you think? Is that important? We just sang four or five different songs based upon the greatness and the glory of God. Do we need to remember that? Boy, one of the things that I think uh, messes up my own life, my own spiritual life, is neglecting embracing the truth that God is glorious and sovereign and wise and good. And when my vision of God and his glory begins to shrink, what happens? All the problems in my life get way bigger, don't they? 
All the issues I'm facing in my life, they just start to rise and they start to claw for my attention, both my emotional attention, my mental attention, my, my feelings, all of that kind of stuff just sorts of ties me up in knots. And what I need a lot of times is a vaccination of the glory of God to put everything in place. That happened to you? We need that too. We need to put God in his proper place. And this passage is all about the people of God putting God in his proper place. And how Malachi is going to rebuke them is through what the priests have been doing. The Old Testament sacrificial system is a very particular thing. It has to be done in a particular place, through a particular set of priests, according to particular times of the day and of the year, with the prescribed animals that need to be brought that look just so. It's a very tight process, and it's all dictated by God. Moses goes up in the book of Exodus, in Exodus chapter 20, receives the law, and then comes down off the mountain telling the people, this is how worship is supposed to look. In all of the earth, you have God who says, you worship in this way, through these people, in this time, with these priests, in this temple, for my glory, and this is how you do it. Which tells us God has an opinion on how worship works. Because God tells us how we ought to relate to him. He cares about that. Do you believe that? That God isn't arbitrary in the way that he wants his people to come to him and to relate to him. So when you move away from that very particular Old Testament practice and you read through your Bible and you discover deviations where people don't approach God in the way that God prescribes, it goes bad. If you remember the sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, who offer before the Lord strange fire, if you know what happens to them, they become brisket. Fire from the Lord shoots out, they get destroyed, they're totally obliterated. And everybody looks around like, I thought those were the guys who were supposed to worship God. If you know the story of a king named Uzziah in the Old Testament, he decides to walk into the temple and to offer sacrifice on his own. And the priests warn him and pull him out saying, it's not for you, O king, to offer incense to the Lord. And God strikes him with leprosy. Even beyond the Old Testament prescriptions, God takes worship seriously. You remember when the ark goes into uh, exile? And they bring it back from the Philistines, and there's a guy named Uzzah, no relation to Uzziah, who steadies the ark with his hand because the ark is on a cart. And he holds out his hand, touches the ark, God kills him. And everybody says, I thought we were bringing God back. I thought he was pleased with us. I thought this was a good idea. And if you think it's all Old Testament, you get into the New Testament in Acts chapter 5 and you have a couple named Ananias and Sapphira who come in to the place uh, with the gathering of God's people and they decide to use worship for them and not for God. And Peter says, you've lied to the Holy Spirit and he dies and she dies and they drag him out by the ankles. So is worship important to God? Does God have anything to say about how worship ought to work? Well, that's this passage. So as we approach singing songs to God about his greatness and goodness, we need Malachi chapter 1, and the people of Israel need Malachi chapter 1. They need this rebuke. And let me, let me tell you before we get into it, Malachi comes with gloves off right at the priesthood. We, and again, we don't know Malachi's background, but if he's not a priest, he's got something to say to the spiritual leaders and the people of the day in this passage. All right? Let's pray together and ask God for his grace here. Father, for these few minutes... As we look into your word, we pray that we might get a taste, just a hint of the glory and the greatness of God. That you, through your prophet Malachi, would show us things about yourself that perhaps we haven't considered before and that we would stand in awe of you here this morning. So Father, shape our church, shape my heart, shape the men and the women in this room to give them a perspective of your greatness and glory that we might honor you and reverence you and give you the worship that is due to you. So we pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. All right, Malachi chapter one, you see verse six there with me? Let's jump in, right, ready to go? 
Don't matter. I'm ready. Verse 6. Here we go. A son honors his father and a servant his master. God is going to, in three different ways in this passage, God is going to highlight human relationships. The first two show up here. You'll see another one in a couple minutes when he refers to a governor. But right from the beginning, God refers to normative human relationships. He refers to what would be uh, typical in this culture. So look at what he says. A son honors his father, which is normative. You would understand that in this culture. Number two, a servant his master. Now watch the question. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? You ever ask your kids questions they can't answer? That's like God right here, isn't it? Everybody would understand when you're supposed to honor your father and your mother. That's in the Ten Commandments. We would know that. And the people of Israel would know that all the way back from the book of Exodus, God tells Pharaoh, let my people go. Israel is my firstborn son. Hosea chapter 11 says, out of Egypt I called my son. So from the beginning, God calls and makes calls to mind their remembrance of their particular relationship. And if nothing else, they ought to admit that they are a people because of God's electing, choosing love, see verses 1 through 5. They should be aware of the fact that God started this thing, God called us to himself, God redeemed a people, and God calls us his peculiar and treasured possession. We are his kids, he is our God. Or as the psalmists say, he is our shepherd and we are the sheep of his pasture. So, if a son normally honors his father and a servant normally honors his master, and God is a father, he says, where's my honor? And God says, if I'm a master, where's my fear? Now, the father-son relationship is characterized by honor. The, the slave and master relationship is, is uh, uh, characterized. characterized by fear. The slave-master relationship is one of complete submission and complete obedience. I obey because I'm own, I am owned by this master. Therefore, my whole life is committed to him. The relationship between father and son is a relationship of honor. There's relationship already, but there's an honor due to the father from the son. The word for honor in the Old Testament is the word called kabod, and it means weight. It literally means something that's heavy, which when you apply it to this context means Israel, and in a minute you'll see the priests, don't treat God as significant to them. He's not a weighty individual in their perspective on life. He doesn't matter that much. And God calls him out to say, you've given me no fear and you give me no honor. Now you see the people that he addresses at the end of the verse. If I'm a master, where is my fear, said the Lord of hosts, to you, O priests. Now if last week pertained to the nation, this week pertains to the spiritual leaders of the people, doesn't it? And for a priest to hear that they are not fearing God and that they are not honoring God means that this priest has lost a key essential ingredient to the vocation that he is supposed to be called to. What are the priests supposed to do if not to honor God and to fear God and to discharge the work and the duties that they have been given? So from the beginning, God says, I've got a problem with priests who don't honor me. I've got a problem with priests who don't fear me and who rather despise my name. Would you agree if you're a priest and you're despising his name that you're doing it wrong? I think right from the beginning we could say probably not a good set of priests. Now, look at how they respond. You'll have this re response three different times in this passage as well. But you say, how have we despised your name? The fact that, this is that they are unaware of how God feels about worship lets you know that these are a people with spiritual leaders who are in trouble. The job of spiritual leaders in this time, and I think the job of spiritual leaders broadly, is to help the people be aware of the goodness, the greatness of God. They have to do that. Otherwise, why are they there? If they give no awareness to the people of God's glory, the awe that he is due, the reverence and the weight that he is supposed to have in their life, they're poor spiritual leaders. And for the priest to respond with, what do you mean? 
God, what do you mean that we are despising your name? means that something else has clouded their perspective just like last week. For the people to say to God, how have we loved you? And here to say, how have we despised your name? That means that the people and the priests have a different perspective than God does. They look at life differently than God says they ought to look at life. How have we despised your name? Which tells us the priests can play the part, they can look the part, they can go through all the motions, but they can at the very same time be despising God's name, which is the biblical revelation of who he is. When God uses my name, it's the biblical uh, exposure that we have to God and who he is. It's God's self-disclosure to us. So the priests have the law. The priests have what Moses has given to them. They're supposed to understand who God is, but they're responding in such a way, their behavior shows them that really they despise God. He's not important to us. He's not significant to us or to the people. So let's just, let's apply this right now in 2023. Is worship happening because we all came to 328 Meeting Street? We all came in here and we're standing here together. Are we, is worship happening? Is worship happening because there's lots of people here? Is worship happening because we all sang songs that talk about God? Is worship happening because we're sitting quietly? How do we know that worship is happening? How do we know that worship is actually occurring? How do we know that any of us are giving God the glory due his name? If God were to confront us with this text... And to say, what you're doing isn't giving me honor, it's actually despising my name, then we have a serious consideration to give to our spiritual lives, don't we? It means we should sit up straight and go, tell me more, help me understand. So let's see how they're despising his name. Look at verse 7. By offering polluted food upon my altar. Now polluted, uh, you'll kind of get a a cloud of terms that describe the kind of service, uh, the kind of sacrifices they are giving. But essentially, polluted means unwelcome. It's an unclean. It doesn't uh, adhere to the Old Testament sacrificial requirements. There are certain um, requirements that uh, pertain to the animals that the people would bring to the priests who then would put on the altar and seek God's face in relationship. But God says from the beginning, you're giving sacrifices that aren't the appropriate sacrifices. The food is polluted that's being put upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? Now, you know, let's just use their parenting analogy. You ever talk to your kids and you feel like you're not getting through? Where you're very clear and you're very patient and you're very kind and you're not raising your voice and you're putting A plus B plus C equals D. Do you see that? And your response that you get from your children is, how? What do you mean? I don't understand. And you go through it again. A plus B plus C is D. Do you see that? How? I don't know. You've had those conversations with your children. And you might even get mad from time to time. I might even get mad. I'll confess to you. I might get a little mad from time to time. That they are not connecting A plus B plus C equals D. And the priests don't seem to understand that as well. Because they think they're going through the motions. They think they're bringing it. We're we're coming to the right place. We've got the right altar. We're the right priest that God has chosen. If you go back to Ezra chapter 2, they took a census of all the people and made sure that they had Levitical priests. So we've got the right priests. We've got the right place. We've got the right altar. We've got the right temple. We've got everything that we need to be in right relationship with God. Now, we've got a problem with the animals that we're bringing. So let me tell you, the sacrificial system is in place to maintain relationship with God. Because you bring a sacrifice to the altar, the priest takes it, kills it, puts it on the altar. The the, uh, sacrifice, ideally, is received by God and fellowship is restored. It's a mechanism so that God can have fellowship and relationship with these people. But right from the beginning, what's the problem between God and his people in verse 6? There's no honor and there's no fear, which means they've lost something essential in their relationship with God. 
When sin happens between God and his people, and his people sin, they have to take blood, and they sprinkle it on the curtain, or on the day of atonement, they sprinkle it on the mercy seat. Because when sin is in the presence of God, he's got to respond in one of two ways. One, he responds with wrath, or if there's a blood sacrifice, he responds with mercy. That's it. God is not ambivalent towards sin in his presence. He does He never says, eh, it's okay. He says either wrath or because of a sacrifice, mercy and grace. Those are the only options. And he tells the priests, you're offering polluted food. How have we polluted you? And here's what he says. By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. These priests are permissive. They'll allow anyone to bring anything to the temple sacrifice. Which means they're not guarding the holiness of God. They're not guarding the greatness of God. They're not, they don't have the courage and the clarity and conviction to say to the people, that's unacceptable. They're allowing this kind of sacrificial um, thing. What's the word? I should have written it down. Bad. They're allowing bad sacrifices. Is that clear enough? Good. Verse 8. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? What's the answer? Yeah, it's evil. And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? What's the answer? Yes, it's evil. Here's what Leviticus 22 says. I won't make it turn there. You shall not offer anything that has a blemish, for it will not be acceptable for you. And when anyone offers a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord to fulfill a vow or as a free will offering from the herd or from the flock to be accepted, it must be perfect. There shall be no blemish in it. Animals blind or disabled, mutilated or having discharge or an itch or scabs, you shall not offer to the Lord or give them to the Lord as a food offering on the altar. It's very clear. When you bring an animal, a bull, a goat, a ram, whatever it is, a partridge in a pear tree, you bring it into God's presence, it's got to be perfect. No blemish, nothing wrong. It's got to be the best. It's got to be the male from the first of the flock. And here are these priests who say, bring any old thing, whatever you want. Give whatever you want, whatever you got lying around. Watch this. This is great. God, God is just great at counseling. Do you know that? Watch how this. Here's the third relationship God brings in. Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? Now imagine just for a minute, you have the governor of South Carolina coming to your house this afternoon at 4 o'clock. Are you going to serve weak old lamb with a broken leg, a bad eye, and scabs? <laughs> Isn't that funny? It's supposed to be funny. Are you going to serve the cow wandering around in circles with mad cow? You're not. And that's the point. You're going to serve the best. You're going to serve Wagyu beef. You're going to serve... Whatever else is up there. <laughs> Give me something. What else would you serve? Brisket? I don't know. What do you serve? What is it? Lobster. lobster. Serve lo Amy Lee's serving lobster. That's the dish she makes. You want good lobster? Get it from Amy Lee. She knows how to make it. <laughs> Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord? What's the answer? No. And now, watch this. And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. Now take that scab lamb to God and go, Oh God, would you look upon my life with favor and kindness and grace? Oh God, would you answer my prayers? I didn't bring you stuff that was all that good or even cost me all that much. I brought you stuff that was kind of just laying around. It was the one limping in the corner that couldn't see so good. But God, would you give me favor? Would you look upon this sacrifice with grace upon my life? With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? See, here's the thing with the sacrifices. The sacrifices aren't just bringing a bad sacrifice. It's not just picking the weak, uh, sick lamb over the pure, unblemished lamb. The point in the sacrifices is that your sacrifices are revealing your heart. 
Your sacrifices are showing you what you think about God. And he says, you treat fathers, you treat masters, and you treat governors way better than you treat me. Because I'm not that important to you. I'm not that valuable to you. You don't honor me that much. When you bring these sacrifices, it's not that I, don't, I want a better lamb than a worse lamb. It's that I want your heart and you're not giving me your heart. We don't have a relationship of honor and deference and love and value. We have an, a relationship where you despise me, you dishonor me, and you don't consider me important. Verse 10. This is surprising. Verse 10. Oh, that there were one among you. How would you fix this problem right now? Before you look at verse 10, don't read your Bible. Hold on. How would you fix? Wouldn't you say, let's get our, guys, let's start bringing the good animals. Guys, let's start doing worship right. We haven't been doing that good. We've been kind of failing at the whole worship thing and me being a priest and me telling you what you ought to bring. I haven't done good. Let's try to do better. Let's do better worship. Watch, how, watch God's response. Verse 10. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors. That you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. What have these sacrifices accomplished? Nothing. You've wasted the animals. You've wasted this whole process. You have been sacrificing to the Lord in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. It does you no good. It gives God no glory to come to the temple and to bring whatever you have lying around just because you think you ought to, to come into God's presence and just go through the motions does nothing for you. It does nothing for your relationship with God. I don't receive you. I'm not, I'm not taking pleasure from this and I don't accept your sacrifice. This is a devastating verse because God said, I would rather have no worship than half-hearted worship. What does God demand? Whole worship. Complete worship. White, hot, fire, heart, action, thought, deed, worship. My whole life is God's. And I'd rather, if I don't have that, I'd rather have no worship than what we're doing here. To just give God a, a pretend sacrifice that goes through the motions does nothing for you, does nothing for me, does nothing for the way that we relate to God. And God says, I won't accept it. I have no pleasure in it. Verse 11. For from the rising of the sun to this verse, guys, man, there's probably, there's probably five or six different cross-references in your Bible off of this verse. So let me, let me this, uh, where we are in this passage is a particularly local reality, isn't it? You got a little bitty nation just back from exile with a few priests ministering to a few people in a very particular way in God's very particular zip code, right? Now watch what these people have forgotten about God, that God chooses to remind them about himself. Look at verse 11. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. Could you get a more comprehensive picture of God's greatness than that? Where does God want his glory to be? From the east to the west and everywhere in between. From the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. God says the ambition of his heart is for global worship. For everybody in every place, in every nation, from every tribe, tongue, and language to be worshiping him globally. So you think 
These people who've come back from exile and who think we've got our very own parochial version of God who lives in the Israel zip code just in this temple that we rebuilt according to these sacrifices that we have that aren't all that important and the priest that he has called. What these people need is a greater vision of God's ambition for his own glory. Because if you don't understand God's ambition for his own glory, that is a from the east to the west kind of ambition, from a I want people in every place in every town, from men and women in every age, in every stage, in every tongue, in every language, in every place, all over the whole world to worship me, then you'll never worship in your zip code. Do you know that? You'll never do that because you won't understand the heart of God that is passionately committed to his absolute visible expression of his glory. You'll go through the motions like this, but you won't connect your life to something higher. When I lose the glory of God in my life, which happens often, I'm not very good. I often shrink my world down to the size of Steve. What happens is that I evaluate God on how he's doing with Steve and whether or not he's blessing, encouraging, making me feel good about Steve. And I make God's glory really particular to my life and what's going on with me. But when I recapture in my heart the ambition that God has for his own glory from the east and the west, the north, the south, and everywhere, my life starts to make a lot more sense because the priorities of God now become to flood, now start to flood my life. And I now begin to share the priorities of God. And when I share the priorities of God in my life, my life starts to make a lot more sense because I realize my world is not about me. This global, this earth, this universe is not about Steve. You can write that down. Put that in your study guide. It's not, and it's not about you. It's about God. So when God looks at his, when God gives us his word, your Bible is a book that's not about you. Your Bible is a book about God, what God thinks about God, how important God thinks God is, how glorious God thinks God is, how committed God is to God's own glory. And what these people have lost by giving these short-sighted, ineffectual sacrifices is that they've lost the awe and the reverence and the glory of God in their life. And God reminds them by saying, you're not just going to worship in this box, in this zip code. There's coming a time where worship will happen globally. Where the glory of God will cover the earth as waters cover the sea, Habakkuk chapter 2 says. That's the antidote for false worship. It's the antidote for ineffectual worship. Verse 12, he goes on, but you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food may be despised. See, the reason their worship is so skeptical is they've lost the glory of God. What we're doing isn't really that important. All we do is sacrifice some animals in the morning and at night and it doesn't really matter what they are. It doesn't really matter that we know God. It doesn't really matter that we honor his biblical revelation of who he is. All we'll kind of do is just sort of go through the motions. So you see how dangerous this is to your spiritual life, don't you? To merely attend a box on Sunday. To merely give a little bit of money. To simply just sing some songs because that's what we're supposed to do. I mean, you've seen the video. Steve, you, you, where's Steve? You in here? Steve, you came back from Thailand. Where's Steve? Is he here? He's in the lobby. Steve, we love you, brother. Be faithful in the lobby. Steve sent us videos back from Thailand. What were they doing? They were worshiping God in Thai. If you go and meet with our Chinese brothers and sisters in our Chinese congregation, what are they going to do? They're going to worship God in Chinese. They're going to sing to God. Because all people in all places have to get recaptured in their hearts with the glory of God. See, the glory of God is what makes sense of why we gather and why we sing and why we speak to one another of Jesus Christ, why we encourage one another. Because in him, the fullness of deity dwells bodily, Colossians says. In him, we see God. So your worship is of vast, vast, vast importance to God. The glory of God is too important 
Because it's the very ambition of God himself is to make himself known to you and to the whole world. So to minimize our worship and to make it merely local, to make it merely personal, is to lose the awe that God demands and requires and that actually stokes the affections and fires of our heart. Here's your third response to that, verse 13. But you say, what a weariness is this, and you snort at it. Everybody do this. <laughs> Worshiping God. Do you know, this is scary, personally, because if you don't have the glory of God as the center of why your worship happens, you know what happens to just spiritual duties? They turn into this. Why, gosh, why go sing? Why give any money? Why care? Why share about Jesus? Why do any, gosh, God demands so much. What does he want? God, get over yourself. I got things to do. This is boring. I'm not that interested in, in this stuff. And that's where the priests are. You say, what a weariness. God, your glory is just, ah, enough with the glory stuff. Can't we just go through the motions? Why are you so concerned with our hearts? What a weariness is, this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence. That either means that they took roadkill, something that was eaten by animals, and brought it to God, or that they stole something and brought it to God. Newsflash, not good. Either one, bad. You bring what has been taken by violence, or is lame and is sick, and this you bring as your offering, exclamation point. Circle that exclamation point. It's there for a reason. This is what you bring. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Verse 14 is the declaration not only of what God thinks about their worship, but the identity of the individuals who do this. Verses 14. Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. What's the goal of worship? Blessing, isn't it? The goal of the sacrificial system is that I might be reunited in my relationship with God, that I, he might look upon my life with favor and that the sacrifice given according to the way that God wants it would release grace to me. And I would say, I can't come into your presence without somebody dying. And God, would you look upon me with favor because your justice has been satisfied and therefore extend your hand of grace to me. But God says, cursed is the cheat. You don't get blessing, you get cursing. Why? The picture here is someone who says, oh God, I need you to show up in this situation. And God, if you show up, I'm going to give you the two sheep back at home that I have as a thanksgiving and honor to the fact that you have met my needs and you've answered my prayers. But that's not what this guy does. This guy is a cheat. This guy prays the good prayers and asks God for big things and God in his grace comes through. But when he gets done and he's out of the crisis... He gives God whatever he's got laying around. He doesn't honor God. He doesn't give thanks to God. God says, you cheat me. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. If this man takes the blessings of God, but he won't acknowledge God's greatness, he won't acknowledge God's goodness in answering his prayer, and he won't actually respond the way he's supposed to. So how do we apply a passage like this? Anybody going to sacrifice animals this week? If you are, you're going to eat them, but you're not probably putting them on an altar. And you're probably not going to eat the bad ones that are lame and sick and blind, right? So there's one way to look at this passage and to go, are we thankful for Jesus Christ, who is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? Amen? Are we glad that God himself like Abraham and Isaac provided the ram to stand in the place of sinners whose worship God would never accept without a blood sacrifice. That's good news, isn't it? We believe that, don't we? We believe that Christ is the propitiation, the wrath bearer, the one who receives the wrath of God because of what I have done. We believe that he turns the wrath of God so that God might be able to look at my life with favor and acceptance and pleasure. 
But do you think that as we move into the New Testament that God expects less of us than what is here? Because there's a way, guys, there's a way to teach this and go, aren't you glad that God, you know, uh, is glorious and provided his sacrifice and Jesus is the one who died on the cross for us? Amen, let's go home. (sighs) Now I don't have to feel all that tension of whether or not I'm actually being pleasing to God in my life. See, that I don't think is, the, is how this text resolves. Can I show you how I think this text resolves? Move from Malachi and turn to Romans chapter 12 with me. Because I think the ambition for God's glory still exists in the New Testament. That God has not changed in his ambition to make himself be seen through people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And that God believes that when Jesus came and God affirmed the sacrifice, that he actually bore the wrath of God and that when Christ ascended, God received that sacrifice as a good and pleasing sacrifice that now as we stand on this side of the cross, we also have a calling to be a certain kind of people who are consumed with the ambition for God's glory. That hasn't changed in the way that God relates to his people. God's glory is still the most compelling thing to build your life on. If you build your life on anything else, it will fail you other than the glory of God. The glory of God gives your life meaning and purpose and direction. It frees you from evaluating goods and bads and right and wrongs according to whether or not God likes me or doesn't like me. It puts that all to bed. Because in the New Testament, when Paul gets to the end of Romans chapter 11, after talking about the glory of God as being revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ, he starts to apply it in Romans chapter 12. And the terms he uses in Romans chapter 12 are distinctly priestly terms. They're distinctly Old Testament priest terms. Let me show it to you. Romans chapter 12. Y'all there? Y'all there? Romans chapter 12. I appeal to you therefore, based upon everything that I've written in Romans 1 through 11, Here's the therefore. Here's how you're going to apply the gospel in your life. Here's the hope and the application that you have because Jesus died on the cross for your sin in your place and took the wrath of God. Here's what Paul says. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. How does God respond to sin? He either responds with wrath or he responds with mercy because someone took the price, right? And Paul interprets the sacrifice of Jesus Christ as releasing God's mercy to his people. So I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, because of what Jesus has done for you on the cross, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That word present is used in the context of the New Testament and in the Greek translation of the Old to refer to what priests do in laying a sacrifice on the altar. It's a technical priest term. So if God doesn't want half-hearted, unimpressive, shoddy worship and lame animals, what is it that God wants us as New Testament believers who've received what Jesus has done for us, what does he want from us? How does he want us to respond? What's the appropriate way to respond to what Jesus has done for us? And and Paul says, present your what? Your bodies. Which means in every place and in every time and in everything you do this week that involves your body, you have an opportunity to put the glory of God on display. What are the things that you're going to do with your body this week? You're going to think, you're going to act, you're going to feel, you're going to work, you're going to love. You're going to do all sorts of things with this body that God has given you, right? You're going to parent, you're going to submit to one another, you're going to listen to your boss, whatever it is. Paul says, give it all to God. What is the only appropriate response to God who has given us Jesus Christ? It's a total holistic love relationship where God has say over every single area of my life. Everything, everywhere, at all times. Whatever God wants me to do. And Paul says, present your body as a living sacrifice. What happens with a sacrifice when it's on the altar? Do you know? It totally gets consumed. 
Which means, again, every single area. What are you gonna do with your body this week? How many activities are you gonna go through this week? Which means every single place that you walk, every single workplace environment you are in, every single family scenario that you face, every single parenting opportunity, every single thing that you choose to do with your money this week is an opportunity for you to say, like these people in Malachi 1 did not, God, you are the most significant and important reality in my entire life. God, your ambition is for your glory in all places and all times for all peoples. Therefore, God, I submit all of who I am to you. That is the only reasonable thing to do. Here's what Paul says. You're holy, but present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. What did God just say through Malachi chapter 1? I will not accept an offering from your hand. What does Paul say here? God accepts it. Isn't that good news? He accepts us. Because of Jesus, I can now live with the glory of God in my mind for the purposes to which I have been called in the variety of places that I'm going to walk in this city and be a holy and acceptable sacrifice to God, which is your spiritual worship. How would you translate this word spiritual? Spiritual, I'm not sure, is the best translation. It's the word L-O-G-I-K-O-S. It's the word that we get logical from. Your Bible may have reasonable It has to do with your mind and how you think. So Paul says, the way that you respond is only reasonable. It's only reasonable for you to give everything to God, to submit all of who you are to God as holy and acceptable to him because that makes sense when it comes to God. He is worth all of my attention, all of my affection, all of my interest, all of my ambitions. He is worth putting it all on God because he's that glorious. Do you believe that? Right now, some of you are wrestling with that. Right now, you are facing the cultural sandpaper of a text like this because you know that to live for God's glory might cost you something. To live for, to actually live for God's glory might mean you need to open your hand to some dreams, some ambitions, some desires. Some of the things that you're holding on as you think are more important uh, to build your life on than God. And Paul says the only reasonable thing for us to do because of the mercies of God is to give God everything. Is to give God all of us. So how do we do it? Verse 2, don't be conformed to this world. What happened to the people in Malachi chapter 1? I would argue that they have been conformed to a way of thinking about God that is more worldly than it is godly. They have thought the wrong things about God, felt the wrong things about God, did not seek God, did not honor God, did not reverence God, just like anybody in the world does right now. And Paul says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God. Have you found in your Christian life that it's hard to know what to do sometimes? Amen? It's hard to figure out what's the right thing to do right here that actually shows evidence of my deference to God and his word, my valuing of Jesus Christ and what he's done for me, and the ambition of God for his absolute glory. Is that clear all the time? No, I have to fight for that. In my, even in my line of work, I have to fight for that. To fight to understand what does this mean in this season? How do I seek God's word and actually discern what the will of God is? How do I have conversation with brothers and sisters in the faith and say, can you help me discern what the right thing is to do here? You have those conversations. Paul says this is a part of what it means to walk as a Christian, to be totally consecrated to God and therefore to fight to do the things that we might understand are the will of God in our work, our parenting, our relationships, our money, our marriages, our job, all of those things, right? That takes work. It takes discernment. It takes searching his word. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, and there's the word again. Isn't that great? It's acceptable. And it's perfect. I want to know, Colossians says, try and discern the things that are pleasing to the Lord. Do you know that, Christians? That because of Jesus Christ, God can look at your life and be pleased with the decisions you are making. Do you know that? That is actually possible. To where your intimacy and joy with your heavenly Father can be certain 
You can experience his favor and that blessing upon your life as you search his word, be renewed in your mind, talk with brothers and sisters in community, fight for discernment, and do the things that to him are good, acceptable, and perfect. See, if God just wanted our bare obedience, then Malachi chapter 1 wouldn't be a rebuke passage. Do you know what God wants? He wants you. He wants your heart. He wants your worship. He wants to be in a loving, dynamic, faithful, covenant-keeping relationship with you. And the only response we have to what Jesus has done for us, according to Paul, is to say, God, take all of me. God, whatever you want me to do, wherever you want me to go, however much money you want me to have or not have, whatever relationships I'm in or not in, whatever season of life I am in, God, I lay my life on the altar. And God, would you accept and take this living sacrifice and use it for your greatest ambition, which is your glory? Amen? Amen. That's Malachi chapter 1. We're done. Let's pray. Father, we pause and confess how often our perspectives are clouded. How often, Father, even in my own life, I confess that I fail to see that your ambition for your glory governs the decisions you make. And Father, we look at Christ and we say how kind and how generous and how faithful you have been. How you have declared your love for us, not by just showing us a plan, but by sending us the very person of your son. To live a life wholly devoted to you. To become the living sacrifice. To eliminate wrath from our lives. And to extend mercy and grace to those who call upon you in faith. So Father, would our lives be characterized as those who are willing to go wherever you send us to do whatever you call us to do, for us to be men and women who are characterized with, by renewed minds, to discern and to understand and to know the will of God that is good, acceptable, and perfect. Father, recapture our hearts. For those in this room this morning who recognize that their hearts are dry and their hearts are going through the motions, Father, I pray that your glory and your goodness might flood into their hearts and minds even now as I speak. Holy Spirit, that you would point us to Christ and remind us of his love and recapture our attention and our affections in our lives that are so easily distracted and drawn away. Father, where we need to confess, we, we confess. Where we need to repent of not giving you all of who we are, I pray that we do that and that we would know your pleasure and that we'd walk in your ways, that even this morning you'd renew our minds. And as we leave this place, we might hear, well done, good and faithful servant. We might walk with you this week, discerning and knowing your pleasure and walking in your ways. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.